0: Our guest this week studied at Liverpool College of Art at the same time as John Lennon and his future wife Cynthia Powell and counted them both as friends. Helen Anderson was lucky enough to watch John Paul and George rehearse in a room at the art school and when Lennon wanted some new clothes he would often sketch them for her and ask her to make them. I'm Laura Davis and I'm Ellen Kerwin, and this is Beatles City. Ellen this is fascinating what clothes did she make for John Lennon? Well he wanted to be really cool back in the day and not a lot of shops were selling the type of clothes that he was after it was sort of the real, real like American style so he wanted all sorts of things from her but one of the things he requested was a special cap the John Lennon caps that are coming back in fashion now like a sort of baker boy, baker boy style um, and yes, yeah, so she made them for John Lennon all those years ago and then mm-hmm. Um, now they're back in fashion she's making them again and you can actually buy them from the strawberry field visitor center so does she have really good memories of john and cynthia really good memories yeah she she said you know at the time john was not like anybody else she'd met before he was really energetic he was always jumping around the place and a lot of people in that art school were going because they really loved art and they really wanted to sit down and do all these amazing sketches and john was almost just there for a good time so did she stay in touch with them she did so she she didn't see him as often as she'd like but she did um speak to him on the phone um and one of the, she taught talk, she talks about actually on the episodes one of the last times she spoke to him which is quite emotional oh. well we'll let you listen to that yeah <laughs> Hello Helen, and thank you for joining us in the Echo offices here in our little studio.
1: You. Thank you very much Helen, and a Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you I too. I hope it's a great one for the Echo and, and Liverpool as it always is. And the Beatles City podcast as well, which is thank
0: of course you. what you're here for today. Thank so you. So
1: you were born in Liverpool, is that right? I was born in Liverpool, yes, born and bred and extremely proud of the fact. Me and my lovely husband Derek, we live about um, a few miles south of the Chester area.
0: And so many people in Liverpool, they all have a story or a connection to the Beatles, but yours is quite rare in the fact that you were really close childhood friends with John Lennon and Mm -hmm. his first wife, Cynthia. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh,
1: Yes. Um, Well, I met met Cynthia before John, actually, because we were both at Liverpool Art School, uh, junior art school from the age of 12, 13-ish And um, we met there, and we were very close friends until we left and moved over to the College of Art. And um, so, uh, yes, and then uh, on the first day of college, um, I was walking along the blue corridor towards the life classroom for our first life class uh, tuition, and um, John Lennon ran over to me and bumped into me, stopped me in my tracks and said, Hey, are you the one that painted Lonnie Donegan? (laughs) (laughs) And um, I said yes, and simply because when I was in my last uh, term at art school over the road at Gambier Terrace, um, I was commissioned to paint Lonnie Donegan from a drawing I'd done that a friend of mine had given him. Uh, And he said, who did this, and blah, blah. A bit of a long story, but I painted a life-size portrait of this man who was charming and absolutely wonderful, and he was a big heartthrob of everybody in in the country at the time, with his skiffle music. So it was quite an honour for me, and especially at the age of 16. So I did this life-size, por- life-size portrait of him, um, which he loved very much, and still had until he died, which is interesting. And John said, well, if you painted Lonnie Donegan, you must be really famous. And <laughs> he said, I want to be your mate for life. And we were. We That's how we struck up our friendship. And then when I discovered... How talented John was! He fascinated me. You know, he was um, he was an enigma even then. There was I kept finding out more things. So did a few of the other people that that kind of liked John. A lot of people were afraid of him because he he seemed he seemed a bit aggressive and slightly Teddy Boy in appearance. But um, there was a sort of little few of us that he had a little coterie of, of, of a team of people of about twelve of us, I think, and uh, we watched everything he did and. Very early on, um, Paul and George used to come into the college and have their fish and chips in our in our canteen that they brought in, brought in from Fortness Street Chip Shop. And um, straight after lunch, which was gobbled down in seconds, um, we'd all go up to room 21, one of our painting tutors' rooms, Arthur Ballard, and um, they would start giving us private recitals. And um, these were young boys. George was only 15 at the time. Uh, Paul was sixteen, John was seventeen. I was sixteen. I'm a year younger than John. My claim to fame. <laughs> um, so um yes, and they'd sit in the they'd sit in the um, the corner of the room, make it they'd make make a little stage thing, and we'd be sitting around doing our work, and they'd just start playing. and they would play um, music by other people like um, favorite was Buddy Holly at the time, John, after Lonnie Donegan. Jean Vincent and lots of other, Little Richard and all these. they sing all their songs. And they were absolutely incredible. But they also um, did a bit of writing their own ditties. The ones I remember, remember mostly were John's, more than Paul and George. George played more than wrote songs, really, at the time. Anyway, he was a marvellous little guitarist, even at 15. And um, they, sang, um, uh, they sang George Formby songs because both George and... John were crazy about this Lancashire singer from Wigan or somewhere called George Formby who was very popular in wartime and post-war and he was an ugly little old man but he sang such funny songs and John absolutely idolised him and they... um, they the songs went uh, most people are too young to remember george formby but i do when i was a, when i was a kid and um it was um i'm leaning on a lamppost at the corner of the street now i think everybody knows that and they'd sing this and it was just hilarious that was always their sort of finale little group three songs of george formby i'm leaning on a lamppost and um a li- with me little bit of a st- uh, little bit of blackpool rock that was another one, and um, so we'd all we'd all end the afternoon killing ourselves laughing, and you know just they they got bundled out by Arthur Ballard when he came back and said out you lot you know, <laughs> on your ears, <laughs> and uh, off they went. But this was every day at lunchtime, so they pract- they had plenty of practice, they had loads of admiration and following, and then the crowd that were, f- were coming to listen got bigger and bigger, you know, as the weeks went on. But um, there were such fabulous fabulous days, you know, really. And so,
0: what was he like in the classroom sort of environment? Because well, obviously, you you had um, our class with him, didn't you? Yes.
1: Uh, well, he was dying to go to the life class because he thought he'd be painting naked girls, <laughs> <laughs> which which we were, but they were they the were not like page three models, you know. they there were serious artist models that had they had good shapes, good bodies, and all different things. We had a we had a male model there as well, used to make us laugh a bit because he was uh, a Trinidadian. Boy, and he thought he had to assume um, poses like Atlas holding the world up on his hand, and things like that. And the tutor always used to say, "Cool it, cool it, Bacchus." His name was call it, Bacchus." You don't need to hold that pose for two hours. Just be yourself, you know. Um, of course, John used to do funny scribbles of him, but in general, he didn't do very much work. Um, even in the even when he was painting the model, when he was dying to paint girls with no bras, he. Um, he just drew the model's watch or the pair of slippers she was wearing on the floor or he put his own characters onto the canvas instead. And I can never remember seeing a drawing of the model in the life class that he'd done except messy up, messing up, messing around with bits and pieces of what was hanging around her, you know, what she was sitting on. He'd draw the stool she was sitting on. <laughs> it's really strange. But... Um, I soon learned, um, very quickly, I, I saw his artwork in his um, cartoons and um, caricatures of people. And the, the things that that we saw were things he'd done at Quarry Bank before he even came to the college. And they were absolutely astonishingly good. And um, he never showed them to the tutors, really. It was just a few of us that liked them. And they were kind of, they bordered on the grotesque. Um, and he, he liked to find the most um, nasty or grotesque side of all his characters that he drew. And he also had a kind of mean streak where he would... Anybody that was afflicted in any way, he would make fun of them in his drawings. But um, it was quite... is it, it was innocent fun, you know. He was, he was just very, very witty, very dry. And he had a sense of the macabre about his humour as well. And um, to be perfectly honest, everybody thought he was... Um, extremely aggressive but i never experienced any aggression with him in those days i I sensed um i sensed that he was a little bit nowhere as he called himself nowhere boy but mainly because he didn't really know where he belonged and um you know he was his mother was living down the road he was living with his auntie and uncle and he he was he was always unsure of himself but um he started coming into his own, I think, in college because he, he had this sense of freedom and he, he noticed that nobody really reprimanded him very much for the antics he got up to, you know, and he was quite reckless at times. He'd leap about the place and we'd all be very quiet doing our, our drawings or paintings in life class and then John would suddenly get bored with it all and he'd start laughing like a hyena, very quietly, and it'd then it would get up to a great crescendo and um, we were all trying to keep a straight face and carry on till in the end we couldn't and, and the whole place was in an uproar because he start leaping around leaping on June's knee and, um, and do, doing silly antics and Just being he was a, a total clown and of course I was very receptive to that Well he had a nickname for you didn't he because of Oh because I used to laugh at everything yeah. yes he, he called me Haloon. <laughs> Haloon. <laughs> Haloon. But he used to make little songs up. We'd, we'd be walking down to the bus stop after college, myself and my friend down. And um, he'd be carrying the bags, you see. We, we always had port. I took work home every night. And we had bags full of brushes and paints and boxes of this and that. And he was very, very gentlemanly in, in that respect. He always took the bags off us because ca- he never carried anything home. And he'd walk down Bold Street with the bags. And he re- used to sing a little ditty Carry any bag down Bold Street or carry carry heli bag down book street you know <laughs> but it was always singing and making up rhymes and poems you know constantly and you as well you were
0: really into your fashion and your clothes making and he he sort of wormed his way in didn't he, he did and yes um i I, I wasn't him. really
1: into fashion yet but i used to make all my own clothes yeah. i really wanted to be a straightforward portrait painter which is my which is my big thing that I always wanted to do, and I still do that. Actually, I never really gave it up. I'm back into it now, but um, yes, uh, John used to say, uh, "Well, you've got a sewing machine at home. Would you mind taking my trousers in and making them really, really tight?" And um, so he'd, um, I'd take them home in the evening, run them up on my mum's um, treadle machine we had then, and uh, next morning take them in. And he had drain pipes, you see, so. Uh, he used to give me a little sketch or a scribble in exchange for the jobs I was doing for him. And I made him once a leather tie because he said, um, oh, but I hate, bloody hate ties. And I said, well, you'll wear one if I make you one. So I made him a black leather tie, skinny a skinny string tie, a bit like the American ties, but a bit wider. The, the American cowboy ties, but a bit wider and um, longer, of course. So, um, yes, yeah, so, so he loved that. And so every time I did the jobs, and another time I made him a black leather waistcoat. And um, so he gave me a lot of his drawings in the end. And I don't know why he parted with them, really, but I gave him a yellow sweater that he liked. I had a, a yellow hand-knitted Aran sweater, which was too big for me, and the sleeves were down here, because my auntie thought um, all students had to have long beatniky sleeves and sweaters that were too big for them in the late 50s you know so my auntie kitty knitted me this sweater that she was very proud of and uh, but it was too big for me and john said i love it i love that so anyway i swapped it for a book of drawings so there you go but you know there were lots of uh, lots of funny um anecdotes of those days and together with george and paul as well we, as i said before with the rehearsals some days when we didn't have to go into college or an odd day off here and there, we'd get the um the ferry at, at um Liverpool, Pierhead, and we'd cross the river and go they'd play their guitars all the way on the boat. Nobody took any notice of them. <laughs> Paul McCartney, George Harrison, John Lennon. Not not a hair was turned. And they'd be playing the guitars on the boat and then we'd go we we'd go to Seacombe because it was cheaper. And then we'd walk right along the promenade to, to new brighton and we'd go and sit by perch rock the uh, which is still there the big the big sort of castley thing and uh, the, we'd plonk on the st- on the sandstone blocks that were on the in the sand full of green moss and seaweed and things <laughs> throw a towel down on there we'd sit on there and they would play all afternoon and entertain us and it was just brilliant and nobody really took any notice you know the people on the beach and People looking, even if it was, you know, a damp day, we'd still go. And um, th- they'd just sort of stand there and look and then wander off, you know. But they were just brilliant. And, um, and this was the birth of the Beatles, I think. <laughs> you mentioned
0: before um, that, you know, you used to exchange some of the clothes you'd make for mm-hmm. his sketches. Do you think it's at that point that he started to, to develop a style and he maybe thought, you know,
1: he could be serious and present himself as a musician? Um, I think he wanted to be cool, and because Jean Vincent had black leather trousers, he wanted he wanted that look. You so know,
0: like he, he
1: wanted he wanted to be the first, looking like the American rock and roll stars. You know, and and John always, even after that, he always had a great sense of dress. He loved clothes, because you can see on all the millions of photographs, he always had new stuff and interesting clothes as well. And uh, he was quite dandified when John left college because he was more or less forced out. But he was ready to go because by this time his music had developed and Alan Williams started managing them and got them the gigs in Hamburg. So he went off to Hamburg and he and Sin were, were seriously knotted together by then. And they, they did adore each other, absolutely. Sin, Sin was a, a wonderful stabling influence on John she um she had a family and because he wasn't quite sure where he was with family he he blended into their family very well mrs powell was lovely and at first she was a bit uh, a bit funny about him because she thought he looked too too common or scousy, or whatever you know so um but they uh, Cynthia soon tamed him and her brothers gave john some nice uh, harris tweed jackets which he started wearing, you know, and he looked good in them. and I think he's—that's when he started to think. Well, there are other things you can wear that are good, you know. But um, anyway, for p- perform performance, it was always something in leather and things like that. So um, that was different. So yes, um, she was a great influence on him in those years because he needed that little bit of stability, and he knew he had that behind him when he was away. And of course, when they when they when Celia, uh, Cynthia got pregnant and. They got married, etc. It was nice. He was happy with all that. You know. It's, uh, it, was, um, it was wonderful. And they were very much in love. She was a good influence on him because she was so calm and very, very clever intellectually. She was, you know, she, was, she, she sort of... She helped him calm himself down a bit. And um, he was just having fun then. Everything for John was having fun. Laughs. It's all, even with the Beatles, that's all they wanted to do, have a great big laugh, but it soon became a bit much for them.
0: (laughs) Do you think that the Beatles had quite an impact on
1: your life as they become more successful? they they meant a lot in my life, all of them, all all the boys. I mean, obviously I didn't see much of George. I didn't know Ringo because he came along later. And when John left college, I went, um, I finished my three years at the art school And I went on a scholarship to Rome to study fine arts, portraits and things like that. And um, so I was away for about a year and a half. But all that time I was away, they were just beginning to hit the headlines. And Cynthia used to send me pictures and send me letters of what they were doing and all the rest of it. And um, finally she said to me, um, Helen, you should be part of all this. They're looking for all sorts of lovely leather clothes now. and, And here's you that can make them. Why don't you come back and... You know, get, do that. Make those things you used to make for us at college, and she said, "Get you should be part of this swinging 60s stuff, not stuck over there studying hard." So I was having a great time in Italy, and I thought, oh, "Why should I give up this life to go back to Liverpool?" You know, which I, I loved Liverpool, but I was just having such a great time, and I was I was really living for my portraits in those days as well, because I was painting one person, they'd recommend to somebody else, and. So it went on. I was doing all right and um, painting lots of um, sort of celebrity people and s- people's children and fathers and grandfathers and all sorts of things like that. And I was enjoying it. And then um, I decided in the end it might be time to come home and think about doing something else. But in between that time I was um, painting fabrics for a very, very uh, illustrious sort of couture house in Rome as a part-time job. Um, because I was looking in their window one day in Piazza di Spagna, and a girl came out and said, where did you buy that dress? This has always been my life's history. What I wore, people always ask me, could they have? And this girl said, this is beautiful. She said, the fabric is beautiful. I said, it's painted. I painted the design on it. So she pulled me into the shop, and I met the two sisters who were running this beautiful um, upmarket couture shop and um, Sorelli Fontana they were called and um, and they asked me would I do some painting for them on fabrics for people like Sophia Loren and Claudia Cardinale and all these Cinecita stars of that era and so there I picked up what I needed to learn about couture fashion and how things were put together and it was very really fascinating I was only there doing paintings on fabrics and I'd take them in after I'd done them at home, a stack of stack of florally designs on the front panels of things and when I went in they were always very happy to show me around the atelier and I watched the girls sewing and I watched how they were doing the insides and and I picked up a heck of a lot from that and so I decided then that um, when I came home I'd start doing leather clothes and open a boutique in Liverpool which is what I did and the first customers through the door, of course, were John and Cynthia. Sin did say, he'll help you get set up, he'll back you and all that. But I didn't I didn't need the backing. I'd saved about 60 pounds. My dad gave me another 100 or something. And um, I found um, a little place to, near the top of Bold Street um, with two floors. So I had one floor, which was a sort of reception and showroom. And the upper floor was where we sewed and a cutting room at the back. And then the girls on the top floor were sewing the things together. And it was very successful for a few years, I think three years. And then I got married and went to live in Brussels. But did the same thing when I got there as well. Then I had my daughter.
0: Can you remember what the first thing was that was
1: sold? So it was was Cynthia and John through the door. Yes. What did they buy? Uh, I made Cynthia a suede suit which had uh, knickerbockers. It was a tan-coloured suede. And it had a little tab just below the knee with the button on it. And um, they were the pants, quite tight-fitting pants. And I, and the jacket that went over it was a double-breasted mock tartan jacket. And when I say mock tartan, it was a tanny brown background, and it had red, blue, and green stripes in a tartan design, which we appliqued onto the suede before we put the jacket together. And there was a baker Boy cap to go with it, which was also tartaned, with with strips of suede this way and that way and that was the first thing I made for sin and um, of course John um, ordered his caps from me and so I was making a few caps for him at the time as well and um, odd things, I I think I made him another waistcoat after that, I didn't make him any trousers because I knew somebody that could make men's trousers and I couldn't be bothered making men's trousers, I didn't like measuring them really (laughs) I was was too shy to say which side (laughs) I thought in those days I thought it was in the middle somewhere, <laughs> but um, yes, yeah, so yes, I made a lot of things for sin, little little leather suits and dresses and things like this. And you had to
0: make quite a few caps for John because he kept losing them. Is that right? I know. Yeah. The first,
1: <laughs> the first one I made was the one that I'm reproducing now: two plaits across the front and two buttons at the side, black leather. And um, I made it in such a way. He said, "I've got to wear." A hat that I can put on the back of my head, because I want the photographers to see my face. So, <laughs> so this is why when you see pictures of John in my cap, it's not on the top of his head; it's on the back of his head. And so, um, he went. I think they went to film. Well, I don't know whether it was a hard days night or help. I think it was when they were in the snow. So I think that was help. And the first day they were there on location. That's right. It was in Austria. And the first day they were there, somebody snatched his cap off his head. <laughs> so um, he missed it then for the rest of the filming. It was on at the beginning, and then then it, then it had gone. So he ordered a few more from me, and uh, I made some plain ones as well as the ones with the buttons on here and there. And then, um, yes, I kind of lost touch with them for a short time. But when they moved to Kenwood, I saw a little bit more of both of them because I went down there a couple of times to visit and... Um, sometimes uh, once John was not there, another time John was there, and we had a we had a great and we stayed up all night talking, drinking, <laughs> and then the next day, um, John said um, we we've all had slightly sore heads the next day actually, and John said, "How would you like to go into the West End today in the Rolo?" And I said, "Oh yes, great, thank you. Yes, we'll do that." He gets out of the car we go to to Kings Road to look in the shops and things like that and he never came back after that that was that we don't know where he went to but Cynthia started telling me that things were going a bit peculiar I don't think don't know whether he was seeing me okay then or not it was just before maybe but uh, he was being a bit naughty and so I was sorry about that because I missed seeing him the next day you know before I went home and um then I went on another occasion when he wasn't there, uh, just to see Sin because she was a bit upset and things had gone a bit awful. I think I think the time that that time was when John had just come back from um America after seeing Elvis Presley, because he brought Julian uh, an Indian headdress. Julian was about three and a half or four. And it was massive, this thing. And he was running... I I always remember him running around the house with this massive headdress trailing along the floor behind him. (laughs) It was funny. But, um, yes, and he was telling us all about Elvis that time and how um, they walked into the house terrified and he was lounging watching telly and he never switched the telly off all the time they were there. (laughs) It got on their nerves. (laughs) But... um, I think I think they're all a bit um, bemused and a little bit cautious of you know being naughty or being hard faced with him in any way because they thought it, they really revered him as the king. John said, and then in the end I think they had a little bit of a jam session. I'm not sure, but he, I remember something about they played together for a bit. But he was, Elvis was on, go, on guard, John said, because he didn't like being outnumbered or um, outshone. And I think the beetles were a threat to him at the time, but they'd be dying to see him because they they adored him, you know.
0: And so, when was the last time you spoke to him? I know one of the last times you have seen him. Well, the last time you seen him was that in the car, and was that when you went to visit him? A, yeah.
1: The last time I saw him was when we were when he never came back to when the car, back, yeah. at Kenwood. But I saw him. I spoke to him again um, a long time later, about nineteen seventy four or five. 74 I think it must have been And um, he rang to speak to Julian We, we were in Cynthia had moved back She'd married Roberto Bassanini in between And that didn't work out So she moved back to um, Hoylake, Lake And I went down to help her pack up Bits and pieces and furniture and things like like idiots packing up furniture in Mrs. Beetle, <laughs> she should have had the the removal men doing all that, but we were we were packing up boxes of china or boxes of this and boxes of that, and we came back literally in the van with the removal people, and we sat in the back, there was uh, Cynthia and Julian and myself, and we were sitting on sort of wood, wooden seats in the back of this lorry. How ridiculous. You know, we should have come in a taxi home or something. But anyway, that's the way it was. And we had the dog as well. Um, the dog's name was, oh, Sandy, not Sandy. began with an S, Susie, Black Labrador. And Su- Susie, oh, all the way up, she was making rude noises and smells. Oh. And it was <laughs> turning, us, turning us over. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so... Cynthia then bought a little... Co- or she I think she rented this house, a bungalow in Hoylake, to begin with, because she wanted to buy a house further out in the country where she could be quiet, which she did in North Wales after that. But uh, when we were in the bungalow one evening, um, the phone rang, and it was John for Julian. And they had a lovely chat, and I think Julian was um, quite happy and all the rest of it talking to his daddy. And then um, he said, how's your mum... And he said, oh, she's, uh, she's fine, do you want to speak to her? And Cynthia said, no, I'm not speaking to him, not tonight. He said, Helen will. So he said, your friend, your friend Helen's here, Dad. He said, "Oh, put her on. So anyway, we had a lovely conversation. And stupid me, I, I was saying things to him like, um, John, when are you coming back? Because everybody misses you. Liverpool have been deserted by you you know you've got to come and back or they'll never forgive you he said oh i miss liverpool and i miss all my friends so much and he said i am coming back he said there are times when i feel melancholy about liverpool and my family the girls his cousins his sister. and um he said um i'm trying to get my green card and i'm on the verge of it I, I, you know but it's so complicated because once i leave america to go on a holiday to Liverpool or anywhere in London or whatever he said I won't get back into the States and he said this is definitely my home now and he said so as soon as I've got that green card I'm, I'm definitely coming first to Liverpool and then to London and he said um, also he said uh, can I ask you a favour and I, asked, I said yes of course John I'll help it. any way I can delighted and he said, will you send me a string of black puddings and an art school scarf? Now, I said, well, the string of black cu- puddings could be difficult because uh, you know, I don't know whether you get them through customs in New York. You know, but I'll certainly try, and I'll try for the art school scarf. I said, Ravenscroft and Willis that used to make them have gone out of business now. They used to be in Hardman Street near the Philharmonic. And um, I said, that might be difficult. And I'd lost my scarf. I didn't know where. Otherwise, I would have given it to him. So I tried everywhere. And everybody we were at college with, have you still got an art school scarf? Because John would love it. Nobody had one. They'd all lost them or thrown them away or something. So I never, ever got And it really upset me when it, only a couple of years later, you know, what happened to him. I thought, why didn't I find him that scarf? But I did try. But, um, yeah, those are his last words, a string of black puddings and an art school scarf, to me anyway, last words to me, yeah, it's very sad.
0: And what about Julian, do you still
1: keep in touch with Julian? I do actually, yes, I see Julian occasionally in France, because he has a place uh, uh, near uh, Monaco, um, we have a place not too far away that we go to for holidays, and um, yeah, we have lots of what we call cuppers and long chats with he never drinks when he comes to us, anyway, and um, it's always no cup of tea and a long chat, nothing more. Piece of cake, cup of tea, and um, and he's a, an absolutely charming and lovely man. He's gorgeous. He's he's had a hard time, and he's he said to me, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working at, I'm working at everything, trying to reinvent myself because. Um, you know he's under his dad's shadow constantly, and he loved his father very, very much. But you know he's been—he was hard done to for a few years, and it's—it's it's definitely affected him in some ways. But uh, he's a very, very charming and very nice guy. Very, very talented in different ways. You know, he does beautiful pho- photography. He has exhibitions all over the world of, of his photography. He's writing books, children's books, which are very, very interesting and um i think he's starting to write more music again so he said but yeah other than that i can't say much about julian because he's a very very private person yeah
0: it's nice that you still keep in touch with yeah Yeah. it's lovely so tell me a little bit more about the caps obviously you made them all those years ago for john Mm -hmm. but you're very much bringing them back now aren't you
1: well, yes, it was very strange actually. I was doing a little talk in the, the now art college in Liverpool about three, two years ago, 18, yeah, two or three years ago, about fashion in the 60s and the art school and the, and the Beatles and friendship with John again. And the principal was putting photographs up on a big, big screen. So um, he put a, a photograph of John wearing the cap on one slide. And um, I told them the story I've just related to you and at the end of the seminar I had a queue of people asking me would I make the cap again and it happened once before um, as well when I went to a John Memorial concert in London with Cynthia to um, uh, George Martin's um, recording studios and it was a fabulous concert and there again I had people asking me and I thought my god that was 50 nearly 50 years ago anyway um, I said the same to the people that were asking me about this i said i haven't i haven't got a, um, a workshop anymore i don't have a factory and i don't have anybody to sew them for me so um i thought about it for two minutes <laughs> like the following day and my my daughter said "Mum, you should do it why don't you She said, nobody's ever done that cap you know nobody's even copied it as far as we know it might be slightly copied but not many people would put the handwork in that went into it you see and that's why it was different so I thought about it and um, I found two people, um, two companies that wanted to make them for me. So um, I, I started making them with a company in Liverpool. And um, here we are today. I'm selling them all over the world. Well, thank you so very much for coming in. It's Staying my pleasure. And to
0: me. You've got some wonderful memories. Oh, thank you so much. If you've enjoyed this episode of Beatles City, please remember to review, rate and subscribe on your favourite podcast app, We you can also find all episodes from our first two series. And all other episodes of Series 1, including the exclusive interview with Paul McCartney, can now be found on the Liverpool Echo's YouTube channel. Join us next week when we meet Liverpool DJ and radio presenter Pete Price, who has his own Beatles claim to fame.